And here we are, folks, back in episode 20 of the Silly Goose Gang podcast. And we are joined by Dr. Martin Pepper, a geologist, presenter of History Channel's Atlantis Found, finalist in search for a new Mythbuster, just telling us that you've been in the Amazon jungle for the curse of Akakum, was it? Akakor, yeah, a Facebook Akakor. Watch series. Facebook yeah. Watch series. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us tonight and giving Thanks us a Oh, nice. And loving the, the workshop in the background as well. We are just talking briefly off air there that it's, uh, it just looks cool. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, yeah, on my weekends, this is where I'm at. So completely covered in dirt, trying to work on about 100 different projects. <laughs> this is cool. Anything, uh, anything in particular that's interesting or, or exciting for, for yourself? Uh, well, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've got some sea kayaks up hanging on the wall. Um, uh-huh. Got some parts of an ultralight aircraft. I used to fly airplanes till I almost killed myself, which totally different story. But <laughs> the rudder that I blew off of the thing there. Uh, model airplanes. I, I do everything. You know, I've got whole welding and machining behind the camera, and then all wood shop over here. So I can never sit still. So are you just taking? Are you just taking something, trying to modify it to better it, and then? playing with it and then trying to modify some more or what, what you, are you trying to create new things or uh well i think it comes down to the fact that i'm just cheap so if it's cheaper <laughs> to modify it then i'll do that but if i have to reinvent because i've made a lot of inventions that just don't exist so when that happens i'll start from the ground you know run to our scrap yard buy some materials by the pound and then you know start machining and working from there yeah yeah so cool yeah yeah that's c- cool I like um I do like I do like some uh some making stuff from parts. It's uh something extremely satisfying about getting some bits and making it into something. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So the, the 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 Facebook thing, um I I'm interested in that right from the get go that you've just finished. Um so what and what you know what are you you know, I'm assuming is it something to do with a curse or yeah, so what that'll stems from a book that was written, I think, back in the 80s. The book's title was A Curse, Curse of Akakor, and it was about how this supposed indigenous guy came out of the middle of the rainforest, uh, and this was over in Brazil, and he came from a lost tribe. He befriended this German journalist, and the German wrote basically word for word what this guy claimed to be. And then the book became famous, and this was in the 80s. And so a famous book got all these kids interested in trying to find this lost city that this guy was from. And so what he would do is he would get these young kids by, you know, pen pals back in the day when it was pencil and paper. And he would convince them, like, hey, if you want to really see this lost city, you're going to want to live here, so bring your life savings. And then he'd get them out in the middle of the rainforest and pop them in the back of the head. So he killed a few of them. Stole their life savings, allegedly. We can't say anything because it's very hard to prove all this. But uh, as soon as one of these kids would disappear, he'd buy something new with the exact same total. So one kid disappeared and he bought himself a new boat. You know, another person disappeared and he bought himself a house kind of thing. So the idea was that uh, Facebook put together this crew, kind of startling, starting with uh, Irish journalist Paul Connolly. And so we amassed this crew that was going to basically go out into the Amazon jungle all the way from over to Peru to up in Brazil. We're going to actually try and find signs. And then also with some detective work and this retired FBI agent, a guy by the name of Bobby Chacon, 
we're going to actually try and look into these murders. My job as a geologist was to look at some of these things that they claimed were possibly part of a lost city. And as a geologist, I basically teased them apart. Is this natural? Is it man-made? You know, and, and where we go from there. So it was about eight weeks in the jungle, just trekking around, trying to find signs, both of the murders and both of this lost city. So it was, it was epic. Yeah, yeah. that sounds super cool. Thanks. Does um now do you did you do any any prior training to be in the rainforest or any survival stuff or is this stuff you already have or? Well, I wasn't. We had some survival experts as well, like Megan Hine, oh, yes. who who works with um, what's the big uh, huge? Uh, this is stupid. I'm forgetting it, but uh, the special forces UK. What's the big guy? Uh, she assists Bear Grylls. And oh, then yeah. we also had a, a rainforest medicine medic helicopter pilot from Brazil. Oh, okay. Was a real big, big star as well. And that was um, it's a Sunday hot morning. I can't forget it. Or I can't remember anything. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so we basically put this crew together. And so each person had their own specialty. So oh, okay. we had survival people. We had an FBI agent. We had a journalist. We had a uh, Brendan Edwards, who was our tech expert. So all these people came together to try and solve this mystery. Yeah, I know there's um, there's been quite a lot of stories um, off lost cities and civilizations and all sorts in the Amazon. So that's, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go and f see this and, and watch the whole thing. It's, it's something that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah, um, like there's all those, the lost city of Z, and then, you know, all the Incan artifacts, and, you know, in Peru, you get the crazy stuff all the way to the Machu Picchu, so it was it was epic trying to basically go pre-Incan for any of these other cultures that might have been out there, yeah. Yeah, any, any, um, any, any intention of going back to find anything else? There's talks. Uh, Facebook has kind of changed their direction, and so we're talking with other channels about possibly either re-airing it or, or going for a second season. But okay. it, it really has to be kind of the perfect thing that has a little bit of all these different, you know, the side of some sort of murder mystery, some side of extreme trekking, you know, and hopefully some natural sciences as well. So we've been mm -hmm. trying to think of the next place, but to, to get all those aspects in there is quite difficult. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, you can imagine it would be. The Lost Cities is one that I've read into a little bit. That's a that would be a cool one to go and metaphorically dig back into as well. So, yeah. 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 The, the big struggle though is to really do this stuff. You need the latest tech, but you put the latest tech with the humidity of the rainforest and the remoteness, and everything breaks. And it's yeah. insane amounts of money. Like, I forget it, what it was, but we were paying like over a thousand bucks a minute to try and do Skype, you know, to try and Skype a visiting researcher or somebody to help us develop maps or, you know, it was just, and to get out to these places, we had, you know, we hired the local indigenous and the same indigenous for some of these areas that caused certain parties to be missing all the way back to the lost city of Z. So we befriended these people, we'd buy them generators and food, and then they would take us way up river in these dugouts trying to find any signs. So yeah, it was, it was an intense journey. Yeah. Definitely yeah. sounds it. It's been uh, quite incredible to be a part of, even with all the the difficulties. I suppose the like anything with that, that you know, the difficulties make the the good moments all that sweeter. I would imagine they make them sweet. But like there was one part that's in the series where 
we went way up river to, to look at this possible artifact. And I think this was going to be our best chance at finding a clue. And then literally that night, a rainforest hit and it was like a toilet just flushed down this canyon and started taking all our boats, started taking all our, all, you know, all the people in our crew just down river in the middle of the night. So it's, it's nice, but it's also scary because in a moment like that, you lose anybody. There's no way to find them. We tried to look into get a search helicopter in Peru, and that was like, it was, it was crazy money, like $10,000 an hour or something. I forget what it was, but just there's no options when you're there. Like, you're just, unless you have unlimited supply of money, yeah. it's tough to do anything with. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure a search helicopter in the Amazon rainforest would uh, do much. <laughs> right, exactly. It's just crazy, solid green curtains, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so the thing that I'm excited to talk to you about, Martin, is yeah. the Atlantis, the Atlantis stuff. Yeah. Um, so why, why just right from the get go, why do you think it's one of these, um, it's the, probably the most uh, intriguing thing to most people. So everybody, everybody's heard of Atlantis. Yeah. Why do you think it's so, so intriguing to people? Well, I think for one you know, and this is, this is where you get in a lot of weird gray areas. For one, you know, Plato's accounts make this thing mm. sound so far advanced that then other people want to throw in extraterrestrial, you know, and all this other crazy stuff. So it's basically, it gets as rich as anybody's personal imagination, which I've found after doing that show, there's some pretty crazy people out there with gnarly imaginations who actually look me up. <laughs> I've had people... I'm not exaggerating. I've had five different guys send me their entire life clippings and how it revolved around their own search for Atlantis. So Plato spun it up, you know, back in the day, he was trying to sell copies just like anybody, any other author is today. So he made this advanced civilization sound even beyond that. And so from his accounts, I think everybody else has just run wild with it. And so it's turned into this, whole, you know, everybody's own personal hunt. So I think it's, become a real buzzword that everybody wants to try and take part in mm. i know um I, i've watched so many things on atlantis and some of them are on ancient aliens yeah uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's not even it's not even that you know most of the things on that show uh you know have super skeptical uh thoughts about them but yeah they're still fun they're still oh, fun yeah. so we are we, we we didn't look you up because we're crazy it's just interesting. Hope you sent me your life story. Probably, I promise you. I'm not sending you. Not sending you anything. Not, not sending you anything. Um, but yeah, so there's there's been so many. Um, you know, so, so so what took you to Santorini? What made you think of you know go to Santorini in the first place? What was the, the idea behind that? Well, the first thing you got to realize it was written by Plato, right? So you can't go beyond what Plato's time understood or knew. So you really had to kind of stay focused in the Mediterranean. Santorini, geologically, is one of the only places that erupted around the same time that would have ties, you know, to the entire Mediterranean. And so it, it just seems like the obvious place because barely anybody was traveling out past the Strait of Gibraltar to see anything else, else out there. So and let alone would that make its story back to Plato. So I think Santorini was the best place in terms of just the general geology of it. Plus how it looked, you know, like we were able to kind of go back in time and stitch what it looked like together before the eruption. And it fits all Plato's descriptions. So to me, that was that was the place because 
it was right in the middle of the Mediterranean. So whatever happens there is going to send not only physical shock waves, but also, you know, folklore and everything else outwards from there. And so it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, I, I, we, both myself and Chris have seen the documentary and it definitely is intriguing. Um, how, how big an eruption was the eruption on Santorini? Uh, well, to give you kind of a scale, it was so big that it literally blew the center of the island completely gone. And there were some civilizations that were, you know, way out on the flanks. And we actually visit one of those in, in the film where you get to see that the thing was basically covered you know, completely covered with a pyroclastic flow. So it was essentially big enough to blow itself completely out of existence. And anything else that was left there it was completely covered. So kind of like Herculaneum, you know, something that we really knew nothing about until people kind of accidentally stumbled upon it all. Okay. That's... Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and even in the little demo you see where I do the, you know, the sand pile on the glove. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, if, if you're sitting on top of the sand pile, or, you know, you're sitting on this volcano, you're literally going to be, you know, that whole that whole mountain is going to be turned upside down. So you got to imagine that if you're on top of that, at best luck, you're going to be, you know, 50 miles below it underneath a huge pile of rubble, or mm. you're going to be completely blown out of there, you know, sent 50 miles out to sea, which nobody can survive kind of thing. How deep, um, how deep are the waters, you know, around about Santorini, around about this area? How, you know, are the waters super deep or, you know? Um, if I remember correctly, it's been a while, but uh, it's around 100 meters kind of in that area. Mm. You know, the Mediterranean doesn't get super deep because it's essentially a closed area. Yeah. The one thing that does allow it to get deep geologically is that you have all these subducting ocean, you know, oceanic slabs that are trying to go back down into Earth's mantle, you know, like a thousand feet or a thousand miles down kind of thing. So when you do have subduction, that that slab is going to start pulling the bottom of the ocean with it. So the deepest places we have on Earth are these subducting areas, you know, like the Marianas mm -hmm. Trench, for instance, over in the Pacific is where you have the Pacific plate subducting underneath uh, another plate. So you yeah. will have some of this depth in the Mediterranean, but meanwhile, you have all these rivers feeding into it that are going to keep sediment kind of piling back up in, that, in, the, in the low zone. Yeah, so, so it would still be, super easy, still be super easy to lose things. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially in an eruption, you know, you basically blanket that whole area with ash. So it's very difficult to get any kind of forensics on an area unless it's been really far away from the actual eruption. One of the shows we did for the, the uh, How the Earth Works, we went to Indonesia to look at Krakatoa. And so that erupted yeah. in 1883. And so if you get away from that eruption, you can actually see the perfect sequence of eruptive events. So it's pretty mm. fascinating. But this is a ways from the actual eruption. You can actually see a carbon layer from where the entire rainforest was burned from the heat. And then on top of that, you get to see a pumice layer. So big, you know, it's almost like, a geology, <coughs> excuse me, the geology version of styrofoam, you know, super light, but rock, you know, bouldery. So and then on top of that, you get finer grain. And then on top of that, you finally get the, the, the thin ash. But, you know, this is like 60 miles from the eruption. So when we talk about Santorini, you know, that island is uh, something like 10, 20 miles in diameter. So the whole, yeah. the whole area is completely, I mean, it was like an atomic bomb went off in the area. Do you, do you have any, um, 
any hope of one day, you know, if, is there a, a possible of, you know, like another eruption would would bring things to the surface or, you know, anything yeah. underwater that would, is there any hope for anything like that that you could get some real concrete physical evidence? Yeah, so my real job, this it's not here. My real job <laughs> is actually in a laboratory. So we look at isotopes of different elements. You know, the big mm. one we look at is uh, different isotopes of uranium and different isotopes of lead. And we can actually figure out the ages of rocks. Yeah. And we, we use basically a laser to uh, ablate or literally blow the, the mineral into dust. And then we looked at that dust in a mass spectrometer. So it goes from a laser beam through a plasma arc into a mass spectrometer. And it's extremely sensitive. And so we can look at, and I'm not exaggerating here, we can look at 20 micron diameter pieces of dust and tell you exactly how old it was when it formed millions of years ago. And so one of the arguments I was doing when they asked me to do this show was, they said, what would you do if you were in this case? And I was like, I'd look at isotopes because if you go to the right area, you know, when you actually model an eruption, you could probably figure out where one of these civilizations were on top of the eruption. And looking at isotopes, you could actually track times, you could track how many people were there, you could track anything you wanted because it's so sensitive. So... I think with the right technology and the right questions, you know, we could really uncover where this possible Atlantis was. Yeah. I, I think I know, obviously, with what we've been seeing in the documentary, but you definitely don't think it's a, a, a parable or an allegory for, you know, an idealized society. We definitely are in agreement that kind of did exist. Well, yes and no, and you know, and this is where you got to put your kind of own filter on things. It was advanced. It's, it's almost advanced. Like, you know, I'm sure you guys have flown a lot around the world. But when you hit like a hub of transportation, like a big airport, or just like, for instance, in the US, <coughs> excuse me, like, like Los, Los Angeles, you know, it's a shipping hub. It's a flight hub. And so Los Angeles, like Tokyo or these other places around the world are where the best technology is going because you have to go through those areas to transport anything anywhere from people to products, to even information. So Atlantis was that, you know, if you look at Plato's description, it was a hub of commerce. And so it was advanced locally and at the time, but compared to what we think is advanced, it was not at all. You know, it was just steps ahead of the times advancements, but you know, and that's just because it was in the main shipping channel. So I see, yes, Positively, it was an advanced society, as advanced as it could be, you know, thousands of years ago. I don't think aliens were involved. I don't think it was some <laughs> underwater city with this perfect glass sphere, which just, other people have written to me about. It you ruined just, all my dreams, Martin. I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, for instance, I don't know. If, have you guys ever gone to Tokyo? No, 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 no. It would blow you away. Like, I was almost taken hostage by a toilet in the Tokyo airport <laughs> because the things have these automatic lid openers. The seats are warm. They have a butt sprayer. They have a hand washer. Like they are so beyond my comprehension of what a toilet should be that yeah. I couldn't get out of the thing. You know, like an automatic <laughs> bathroom door opener. I hit the wrong button and told the toilet I was female and parts of me got washed I didn't want. So <laughs> I can see how certain people see this as so far advanced that aliens have to have something to do with it. 
when yeah. really it's just the most technologically advanced country in the world has the most crazy toilets I've ever seen. So I hope this kind of makes sense to people yeah. that I'm sure that they were beyond other cultures, but yeah. not that far compared to what we would know. I think um, when it comes to when it comes to people going, you know, whatever you look at, um, whatever historical site you look at, I think it's easier for people to say it must be aliens rather than saying I have no fucking understanding of what this is. It's just <laughs> right. easier to go. So they can't say I'm really stupid and I don't know what it says. Go, oh, well, it must be aliens because I don't know what right. it is. So it has to, be, you know, what I mean, I think that's just an easier thing for people to say than admit that they're dumb. <laughs> Right, and then, well, the other thing, too, is I'm sure they hate to think that it can only be in the Mediterranean because everybody wants to think that there was an Atlantis at other places of the world, and therefore, whenever they find a strange place, they find an archaeological dig that has things they don't understand, they quickly want to say, ha-ha, you know, and, and if you're trying to do research, you're trying to get funding, you're trying to get noticed, you got to use the word Atlantis, right? Mm. Because yeah. if you don't use Atlantis, you're basically going to shoot your project in the foot. You use Atlantis, you get it spun up on some news site, all of a sudden you get the attention you need to make it go to the next step. Yeah, I have, I have read, um, you know, you know people's talking about Atlantis being off the coast of Ireland, you know, out off, you know, like the past, you know, off the coast, of west coast of Africa, Indonesia, you know, the Antarctic, all these places, but you don't, you don't give any, any, uh, any acknowledgement to any of those you're saying 100% just based on what Plato was, was talking about yeah. it has to be round about Santorini well I see I see kind of two sides of that right because who even knows if there was a real Atlantis for Plato you know maybe he was kind of throwing out this model idea and so yeah if that's the case there was no true Atlantis that he wrote about and that it was a, a basically a folklore when he wrote about it then quite possibly there are Atlantises around the world, right? There are these model fits of an advanced society. Mm. If they were a true Atlantis, then yeah, you can't give them any consideration because back in that day, they barely knew what happened out in the Atlantic. You know, mm. they didn't want to get out past the Strait of Gibraltar. So yeah, because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very different as well. Talking about seafaring, very different traveling around the Mediterranean. Than going out into the North Atlantic with the boats of the time, um, right? Especially as you're saying, if uh, you know, with Atlantis being a trading centre, yeah, it just doesn't make sense that they're heading out through the Pillars of Hercules, heading out through the Straits, and then heading into the North Atlantic and running into those North Atlantic storms and boats that were essentially designed for an inland sea, which is what the Mediterranean is. Yeah, yeah, and you look at the boats of that time, especially the shipping boats. You know, lucky if they had sails and oars, but they were basically open bow to basically allow you to pile up supplies. And so they weren't set up to be out past any giant ocean system. So any guy or any person that's crazy enough to try and go for it probably didn't last very long. Yeah. And didn't come back to tell about it. <laughs> Do you... So as a, as a, you know, do, do you see there being like a connection between, um, you know, Atlantis and, it seemed to be that people went to Egypt to learn. Is, is that something that you, you kind of put together as well? Yeah, so that was just a supply route. So again, we're talking about a hub of commerce. And so before the eruption, we would definitely see, you know, pottery and other supplies that are going to these kings over in Egypt. 
And so if, you, if you're getting supplies from these areas, you're definitely going to see them on these tombs of, you know, these kings that were getting these, you know, sourcing these supplies. And then any kind of an eruption, you know, basically the Mediterranean is the backyard of everybody. So you get a decent eruption. For one, you're going to blanket the whole area with an ash cloud. It's going to make the area go dark. It's probably going to give you a nuclear winter, you know, and so the growing season is going to be short. And then you're also going to get giant tidal waves. You know, you're going to get these, these surges of ocean if you're near a shore or up a river. And so, of course, not only did it make it there with the supply route and with the humans, but I'm sure they got about an hour's warning before their own lives were greatly affected as well. Mm. Damn. If only, uh, if only the Library of Alexandria wasn't born to be have all this information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I mean, yeah. scientifically, with isotopes, we, we can uncover most of this stuff still, because <clears throat> there, are, there are some, you know, some source or some hint down there that we could get all that information back. Not, not exactly what we're happening on a human scale, but naturally, you know, we could yeah. tease out everything that went down. Talk, talking about a nuclear winter and, and the impact of the earthquake, sorry, not the earthquake, the volcanic uh, corruption. Just talking Krakatoa, I'm sure I read that even as far away as it does down in Indonesia, it was there's evidence of it in the British Isles, where obviously where we're from, that there was almost that nuclear winter for a couple of seasons. They've seen it in soil samples that the growing season was a lot shorter and there was localized yep. famines. And you think if that was from you know Southeast Asia to to the United Kingdom. Yeah. then certainly something like Santorini blown up would have caused, you know, major issues right across the whole Mediterranean basin. Yeah, so that's the big thing. And, and I think that's kind of the, the showstopper for humans. You know, we talk about how personally we're causing this greenhouse effect and we're ramping up the temperature of the earth. All we need is a super volcano and COVID's got nothing on us compared to what mm. a giant eruption would do because yeah. of these nuclear winters. And we're seeing yeah. it now with COVID, you know, we're so globalized now that we, we screw up one part of our shipping or our supply and everything else is shut down. But if you shut down northern, the northern hemisphere of the Earth's growing season, you know, we've got some serious issues. And so we would have seen that during a Santorini eruption or Krakatoa, where you literally need to shut down one growing season. Right now with our population scale, there are going to be a lot of people hurting and I think that's kind of the next big thing. You know, you get a big eruption and uh, all bets are off. And it's yeah. to, to kind of explain how that works. It's called a nuclear winter because the first people that figured out that that would do such a thing were uh, nuclear scientists. So the idea was back when we were doing the Manhattan Project and we were talking about bombing in World War II, people were thinking about, wait a minute, if you set off a detonation of that size, basically eject dust and other things in the atmosphere that act like a big umbrella, what happens? Well, you do it hot, you do it big enough, and you literally shield the earth from getting any sun. You do that, and in the summer, it drops into a winter. You do it big enough, and you can shut that down for something like 10 years. And it's not mm. just ash, it's even things, sulfur-based stuff. So sulfur binds with water, and that forms this aerosol that will not come out of the atmosphere for tens of years. And so that's when the idea was coined this nuclear winter, but really it comes down to volcanic eruptions, asteroid impacts, anything big, and you can shut down the earth. And so just look at the dinosaurs, ask a dinosaur what it was like, and you'll get an idea. Yeah. Cause that, the, uh, the, 
one of the theories is it was that's what the Gulf of Mexico is, isn't it? It was a the yeah. massive asteroid impact that caused the the dinosaurs to go extinct. Yeah, it was an impact. We did a show on it, so I always know oh, too really? much when I've done a show. But the asteroid came in low, aiming northward, and so when it hit the Yucatan Peninsula, it shot basically uh, these liquid rock BBs around the entire world that literally caught everything on fire and also sent a tidal wave, you know, hundreds of meters tall that washed on all the shores. But those little liquid rock BBs, and I swear, I, I will bet my life on it, made their way all the way out to the moon. And so oh, really? the impact not only caused a nuclear winter, but it, it caused all these incendiary BBs to travel all the way around the world and catch everything on fire. So the ultimate warfare done by one rock. Yeah. And so they found, a layer of these. <laughs> they found a layer of these around the entire world. It's thickest right around that Yucatan Peninsula, but they find it all the way on the opposite side of the earth. So it kind of tells you that scientifically it, it happened. So you've been down to you've been down to the Yucatan. Yeah. So the cool yeah. thing is, is it created this impact so intense that it caused a ring that you can still see in the gravity. So if you scan the area of gravity, an anomaly or a difference makes a perfect circle circle right off the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula, and it's in that circle that you're getting all these areas of uh, basically dissolution of the carbonates. And so these sinkholes also form that same perfect circle. And then you follow that trajectory and then northward from there at all, you know, you see the debris basically all the way northward. Oh man, science is so cool. It's wild to think that it managed to throw it all the way across to the moon's surface though. Yeah, but it has to. I mean, think about it. If you're throwing ejecta to the opposite side of the earth, the moon's not that far. Right, so if you can throw something on the other side, you can easily throw something out to the moon. Especially if you get it, you know, you get it far enough out of our gravity, and it's going to wrap over and, and land on the moon. So one of the things that I had read um, about the Yucatan uh, um, uh, asteroid was that the explosion would have created more power than all of the nuclear weapons on Earth at the height of the Cold War. Oh yeah, yeah. easy, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> and I should, you know, to, to talk about nuclear power, I saw a talk a few years ago where there was a scientist that modeled an, a nuclear eruption now. Because you got to realize this idea of a nuclear winter took place back before we had technology with nuclear devices. Mm -hmm. And this person modeled the size of a nuclear warhead that we don't even have anymore, really. You know, it was a very yeah. small nuclear warhead. And I forget the estimates, but it was something like, the nuclear winter would cause a die-off of something like 25% of the human race. One warhead that we don't even have, it's so small. So it's pretty scary stuff. Hopefully people realize what we're playing around with when we have these fearless leaders around the world threatening to do such things. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Crazy. <laughs> Sorry. That's crazy. When it comes to... <laughs> when it comes to good news. Yeah. Uh, as, as a geologist, then, and talking super volcanoes, Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, so when Yellowstone went off, I forget the last time. You know, a lot of, a lot of these times, I don't know. So yeah. I'm throwing out ideas. But it was around 100,000 years ago. 
When Yellowstone erupted, it covered, and I'm not exaggerating, pretty much most of the Western U.S. With ash, like we find, here we're in Tucson, we find an actual layer of when Yellowstone went off in the past. And so, same thing. When Yellowstone went off, everything probably closely went extinct. Everything big went extinct, or anything that really demanded a, grow, a growing season. So, and it's a hot spot. The cool thing about Yellowstone is you can actually see where it's been tracking from, you know, across the U.S. And it's literally burning its way through the crust, burning its way through continental crust, which makes it even more explosive. Hawaii is a hot spot, right? But there yeah. you can walk right up to a, a lava river. Worst case, they have a lava fountain where you got to stand back a few hundred feet, you know. But in Yellowstone, you want to get away from that eruption, you better go down to southern Mexico. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that something that you are concerned about in our lifetime? Not, well, I mean, how can you be concerned with something you can't, you can't do anything about, right? Yeah, but you, so, you don't because you, you, you always you always see you know there's been tremors around about Yellowstone. Is that just media stuff or is or a or spoiling? No, know. no, it's gonna come true, but it's it's kind of like a doomsday. Or like if I sat there and prepared for a year's <laughs> yeah. worth of food, I'm just gonna suffer for a year before I'm dead. <laughs> I want to be taken out, gone. You know, Those you're gonna be like. You're going to be like Woody Harrelson in the, the 2012 film. You're going to be up there in your, your uh, RV on a right. radio show. <laughs> yeah, I've got this military five-ton, and I'll just be driving straight towards Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's going to be funny. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually quite a... Uh, you know, between, that, between super volcanoes and um, yeah, asteroids... You well, know, that's what, it's, 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 you know, when you look at the geology time scale, the Earth is 4.55 billion years old, right? You know, and humans have been here for literally a split second of that. I mean, it's, it's insane how short we've been here. But as you learn geology, you also learn that extinction is the rule. Like, mm. from what we see on Earth today, that's about 0.001% of what's ever lived on Earth, maybe even less. You know, the fossil record's incomplete. But, you know, the rule is that we're all going to die. As a species, personally, 100% success that we're going to die. And so as a geologist, you learn to just look at it, enjoy it, study it. But at the end, you realize we're all dead. So <laughs> figure out what you can before it's your turn, you know. <laughs> it, just, it seems like it's one of those things, the way 2020 is going. Oh, yeah. You know, nothing, nothing would surprise me anymore. You know, we well, as a geologist, I'm not worried either. Because like COVID, you know, I bet you it's going to be hard to find COVID in the fossil record. Although, like George Carlin said, we will leave a thick layer of plastic. You know, <laughs> the top layer on the Grand Canyon is going to be the human plastic zone. But yeah. something with COVID, we're not going to probably find a trace. No, totally, totally. It just seems like it's been such a crazy year so far with, you know, you cast your mind back even just January, you know, Australia was on fire and then we've been talking nuclear weapons. There was that, remember Iran and everyone was worried about World War Three, and then COVID came along. And, <sighs> and, the Hornets were there. The murder Hornets in your area at all, Martin? Yeah. I hope they get here to Tucson. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I try and get stung or bit by everything, so I was kind of excited about the idea of that. Do you guys you have the... What's that? Sorry, did you say you try to get stung and bit by as much as you can? Yeah, so before geology, I was a biologist, 
And so okay. when I was younger and dumber, I would pick up rattlesnakes and tarantulas, whatever, like tarantula hawks, everything. So this was before, if I, if YouTube would have come about 10 years earlier, you know, I, I would have been filming all these stupid things I used to do. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, there's, and I'm not exaggerating. There's at least 30 times I should not have lived. Oh God. And so uh, like, for instance, the airplane part back there, that was flying an ultralight into a thunderhead. Dumb, what? The dumbest thing I'd done that year. <laughs> and I mean, an it flipped me over and threw me out of the bottom of that cloud so quick. But then um, for my PhD, that was, uh, and I'm not exaggerating, that was about 40,000 miles on a dirt bike motorcycle for seven months in the dead of winter of South America. So... I got caught in blizzards. I had guns to my head. I got ran off the road five times a day. So, yeah, I'm surprised I'm still here. I wasn't. This, is a, this is a crazy existence. Yeah. yeah. So who, who put guns to your head in, uh, in South America? Uh, it ha that happened five times. So uh, <laughs> the craziest one, I'm not exaggerating again. The craziest one, because like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm cheap. I don't want to pay for anything. So... Seven months on a, it was a Honda XR 400, pretty much stock, but I chopped it up in this shop. So in this shop, I made it have a, a stiffer suspension. It could carry 400 pounds of gear. And I made it so I could literally take it apart because I planned on getting stuck in rivers and sand, you know, doing crazy treks. And so I would just be in the middle of nowhere, sleeping in a ditch by myself. And it just didn't look normal to the locals. And so in one place, right outside of Buenos Aires, this ranch owner called the cops and turned me in as a cattle rustler. And so five <laughs> cops come and I, you know, I wake up in the ditch to all these guns on me. And I'm like, que pasa, amigos, you know, what's up? And they're like, we've heard that you're a cattle rustler. And I'm like, on a motorcycle? And they laugh. And I explained what I was doing. And actually, that night, I'd scared off the cattle rustlers. I didn't even know it. But at, at about 3 a.m., these people were cattle calling, you know, suey, suey. And I stood up. And I said, why? Okay. And they were like, hefe, hefe, boss man. And they took off. And that stinks. The damn random called the cops on me. But my guys, the way I was kind of out of trouble is I, I'm a photographer also. And on part of my website, I would take nude photographs, and I had business cards with nudes on them. So there's all <laughs> macho Argentinian cops, and they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a photographer. I take nudes, and I handed them all my business card. And they looked at them, and they're like, we got office work. We got to get back to the station. <laughs> so they took off. Yeah, so yeah, that was, that was a pretty crazy trip. But Jesus the funny thing Christ. is, they were leaving. They actually invited me to stay the night at the police office so I wouldn't be out in the mud. So that night I stayed at their place. Yeah. <clears throat> That's cool as anything. But I'm yeah, there was, there was five times on that trip I shouldn't have lived. Like another time I got caught in a blizzard on the southern tip because our summer is their winter. So yeah, negative yeah. 18 degrees. The, the road was about, you know, a few centimeters of ice. And then another blizzard hit, and I was going through hypothermia. Like, I didn't think I was, I called my dad on a sat phone. I said, Dad, I don't think I'm going to survive this. And I was crying. And he's like, Oh, shit. Well, 
if you're alive tomorrow, call me and I'll let your mother know. If you're not alive, I'll let somebody know, you know. She's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in the middle of nowhere, man. I haven't seen a car in days. And so after I got off the phone with him, and I was shaking, and I was convulsing from hypothermia, I couldn't get my camp stove started to make a heat, you know, to, to try and stay warm. That night, I'd been wrestling my bike in the ice, so I got sweaty. So the night before I went to sleep, I took all my clothing off full of sweat, and it froze into a ball of ice. Uh. There I was just curled in a ball, about to die. The only thing I could do, and this is pretty disgusting, but, you know, why not tell you everything now? <laughs> I got the stove taken apart. Turned out there was a little drop of water at the jet, you know, so it wouldn't let the fuel in. So I got that out, put the thing together, barely, you know, shaking. Everything was frozen, including my alcohol, you know, so I couldn't even drink myself out. So, <laughs> and everything was in plastic Nalgene bottles, so there was nothing I could do. So I got the stove working, and the only thing I could do was boil my urine and defrost my clothing to get it on. And so, <laughs> completely boiled in urine. And I went to the next... <laughs> I didn't realize how bad I stank either. And I arrived into the next gas station and they kicked me out. They're like, you've never smelled something so horrid. Get out of here. Yeah. So I literally had to push on to the next gas station just to get gas. Oh man, that's amazing. That, that is that. I mean, I know the worst thing that I've ever had to do, uh, nothing like that, is um, you know, swimming, swimming in the sea or swimming in a lock and 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 your wetsuit and you have nothing else to do except for you know pee yourself. You need to pee. You have to pee yourself. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah, that, that's that's quite disgusting. But I've, I have never had to <laughs> you know boil my own pee to defrost my clothes. Yeah, the new <laughs> the new body warming technique. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a different I... that's a different level. So why why did you why did why did this trip happen, Martin? Why did you? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I don't know how why anything <laughs> it's, in my life. It's the, it's the only question, <laughs> dude. I just I literally I'm not exaggerating. I fall through my life backwards, and when I fall on my back, I look around and go, "Oh, this is interesting." So, to kind of answer that question, I was literally traveling the world trying to die by some sort of Darwinian. You know, the Darwin Awards, I was trying to yeah. somehow make the awards, but I, you know, I was just trying to do crazy stuff. And I started a listserv. So I had about a thousand people on this email and I did stuff like I worked in Papua New Guinea. You know, I had, I had machetes to my throat doing dumb stuff there, you know, parts of the Caribbean, parts of Mexico. And a professor here actually said, uh, you know, basically I need somebody as stupid as you to try and collect sand from every river in the world. And so that's kind of how that started. And so South America was going to be a litmus test. I was single. And I said, I'll collect your sand, but I want to take photos and I want to do some crazy stuff. And he's like, done. And so <laughs> basically the sat phone was to just, just check in with him and be like, you won't believe what just happened this time, you know? So, so, what, how, how, so, 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 so. Papua New Guinea, there was machetes to your throat. What, what's, what, what happened there? So I took a job sight unseen. That was another stupid one. Uh, <laughs> sight unseen. <laughs> it was a dive resort, like world's best dive photography kind of thing, because I wanted to be the next Nat Geo photographer. And so just by luck, I was selling photos, and I had about 40000 in gear that I bought from selling photography around the world. 
So I took the job. The job was gonna pay me like a thousand bucks for annual salary, but I got Sundays <laughs> off and free use of their dive boats. And so I was working like crazy on the weeks to then go off and do underwater photography. But the job was site manager. And in Papua New Guinea, they don't like white people because the Brits, you know, squashed them. And so I would basically do what I did in the past by just trekking through the jungles. And there are a couple times, you know, they're very furious about protecting their land rights, their own land. You know, the locals are always at war. And so I, there were a couple times where I would just kind of come into this village as some big, tall, stupid white guy. And the first, their first instinct is to put a machete to the throat, you know, shoot and ask questions later. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, don't, I only lasted six months at that. And then I got this horrendous stomach bug. And yeah, so I came back for a little bit and regrouped you, you and then figured out the next step. Even six months is a very, very good effort. <laughs> Trust me, dude. By the time they sent me home, I was fetal position, man. I was fetal position on the airplane. Other than first thing back here in Tucson, I went to a doctor and I was like, I don't know what I have, but I can't even sit up. And the doctors are like, we don't do tropical diseases. This is a desert. And they're like, what we're going to do is we're going to prescribe you every kind of parasite killer, you know, antibiotic, and by killing everything in your stomach, we hope we can get it. So it, it took months to a year to try and get out, get over that bug. Jesus. Um, yeah, but it was it was a good time, you know. You can't argue <laughs> oh, I, lo I love the fact that you're just so casual about it. Like, oh man, this one time these guys in Papua New Guinea tried to have a, a, a knife to my throat, and it's just <laughs> living. If you don't, yeah. if you're not about to die, then what's life about, you know? Yeah, yeah well, yeah, that's true. That's true. I do. I have done. Um, I have done a couple of you know running races where um, you know, it says on the entry form, you know, there is a risk of death in this form, and you know, people say, why would you do that? And you go, it was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> seems kind of exactly. seems a good idea, but yeah, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to Papua New Guinea to trek through jungles or anything like that. But yeah, that seems like fun to me. But yeah. Um, as a biologist, though, because that's what I was before geology, like the biology there is is second to none. You know, like the rainforests all the mm. way to the the coral reef. That's in the coral reef triangle, you know. So, like, we would dive down and you'd look through the different coral lattices. It's just insane. So, one of the fewest places on Earth where it's got the least coral bleaching. You know, that's yeah. where they're trying to save first. But, like... I would go back in a heartbeat, even if it meant shipping me back in a box again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that no. sounds. Uh, is, yeah, any any plans? Any plans to to head back or? No, like uh, so. I have kids now. My wife doesn't want me dying, so I've I've simmered out a bit. <laughs> so um, maybe, the one thing, maybe just... stupidly, I bought a giant sailboat last year and brought it home and she wasn't very impressed. It was a 10 meter decent sized boat. And I've brought back some really big, stupid things, but this boat really didn't win me any points at home. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, Arizona is pretty much landlocked as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's gonna be tough to put it somewhere. <laughs> so the idea was to, um, 
Yeah, I don't think things through, man. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> the idea was see if we're comfortable on it and then find water, you know. So, but we're not there yet. Our kids are young. <clears throat> okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. What happened with the Thunderhead and Ultralight? So, this is funny. This this will just show you how stupid I am because I <laughs> taught classes explaining cloud dynamics. But I was in the air, and these ultralights or microlights, I don't know what you guys call them, they fly slow. Like, they fly maybe at most 40 to 50 kilometers an hour. Mm. And so you're at the mercy. You're just shit paper in the wind, essentially, when you think of something like big winds. And so I'm flying along, and I'm right at the ceiling. And I'm thinking, oh, the cloud starts above the ceiling, you know, where you see the base of the clouds. I didn't even think that, wait a minute, there must be an insane updraft below that. It's just the humidity isn't there yet, you know? So I'm bored in the middle of the desert, and I just start flying towards one. And, I mean, it shot me up, and then it flipped me over. It shot me down faster than free fall. And luckily, it's got a five-point harness on it, or I would have been done. You know, I would have, I would have fallen out. But it was insane. Like, just, it was like there was a big paw that just spit me out of the bottom of this cloud and so i was kind of falling into the ground and luckily was able to get it right right side up landed it and then i was like all right i think we're gonna sell this one <laughs> but the funny thing is is my instructor i didn't realize this but people around here that do ultralights are pretty crazy you know a lot of them have crashed and they keep going into the air my instructor is one of these crazy guys like when he was showing me how to fly, we had an engine out on takeoff, which is, I had a friend die doing that essentially. Cause you know, you have, you have this angle like that and there's really no way to get aim down. It just stalls out and hits the ground. So he quickly salvaged us. We land, we know we went into a couple bushes and I asked him, I said, how many of those you been in? And he was sitting there counting for a while. And he's like 24, I think. And it's like, why do you keep doing this crazy shit? So, you know, once he taught me how to fly solo, we'd have a monsoon season with, you know, 40, 50 mile an hour gusts. And I would go out to take off in that weather. And he'd come up and be like, what's your problem? Do you want to die? And I'd smile and he'd say, all right, go ahead. Off you go. <laughs> and I'd take off. Yeah. So, I, I got to the point where I was soloing. I didn't get my actual paper license, but... After a couple of those stupidities, I realized I shouldn't. I shouldn't go forward. <laughs> <laughs> what? What do you? What do you do to relax? Ah, <laughs> uh, lately I started meditating. That stuff's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. This is. Uh, this is. What's amazing about doing these uh, these podcasts and having conversations with people is they never go the way you think that they will go. Oh yeah. <laughs> They just never go the way you think they're going to go. It's amazing. The funny thing, too, is, you know, like, when I've been pitching myself to do these different shows, they are hiring you on the show to be something that the production company is putting together, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times they'll hire me as a geologist, but then try and put words in my mouth because they've tried to form a script, yeah, yeah. And I'll show up like you guys are seeing now, like just a crazy nut job, you know, goofball. 
And they'll be like, no, 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 we're not doing that. You know, we want you to be a serious geologist scientist. And so what people see on TV is, is maybe 1% of reality. And then I start talking to people and they're like, geez, you're nothing like I thought you were on television. It's like, right. They're paying me to be some fictitious character. So I'll be the serious scientist. See, this this is all making sense with the first email when you replied to me emailing you, Robert, when you replied, um, uh, sorry, Robert Martin, don't know where Robert came from, but um, saying, (laughs) (laughs) as long as you can have a laugh and have a joke, you would and that totally makes sense now with what you're saying. Uh, um, yeah, because if yeah. you're not having a good time, it's a waste of time, right? Yeah, yeah well, that's, that was our whole point of doing this in the first place, was to have fun. Um, and if people, if people have asked us, you know, how, how do you do it? How, you know, do you write a script that you want to run through? And me and Ali say, no, we have some basic ideas that we would like to talk about, and then, fuck it. Right. Best way to and that reminds me, I, I just went to a really cool workshop here at the university. It was on improv. And the title of the improv workshop was Yes And. Because I see myself as a yes person. Like, I've been teaching these classes where a student will come up and ask to do the craziest stuff. And I'll be quiet, trying to think to myself, how can I say yes to this kid trying to kill themselves? You know, because to me, it's kind of endearing. <laughs> And then I saw this workshop and I realized that a person that can walk into any situation ready to say, yes, how can I make this? How can I facilitate it is the perfect scenario for like your guys's talk, you know, your talk Mm. show here. You guys are the ones trying to say yes and to keep a conversation going and make it exciting and to build on itself. So you can't script that. you got to just show up ready to say yes let's make this happen and that's when shit life really takes off yeah yeah definitely, yeah, definitely. We, we said very early doors we didn't want it to be so and now we're going to talk about this and then we're going to ask this and then we'll ask this because it, it becomes too too structured and too rigid and there's no way we'd have got half of the stuff we've had from your your good self if we had tried <laughs> yeah. to go that route because we've, yeah. it works when it's a natural conversation you let people yeah just talk and share what they want to share. It works so much better. Yeah, no, definitely. It gets dangerous. It's almost like a, you guys are like a counselor. You just want to tell you more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just so... still, intrigued by the, still intrigued by the picking up rattlesnakes. At which point did that seem like... I know right. I know we've not spoke about other things, but Chris, Chris mm. hates snakes, which is why I mentioned hate it. hates snakes. Well, at which point do you think I'm going to pick up a rattlesnake? So... To kind of give a, a backstory, I've always been a critter, uh, a critter guy, you know, like as a kid, I was catching everything. You know, my, my parents luckily would just let me bring home anything. And I had like the house had tons of wild rats that got out from my pockets, you know, mice, lizards, snakes. So ever since I was a kid, if I saw it, I wanted to touch it. And I wanted to try and, and pick it up and, and hold on to it. And so when I was in college, my swim coach, same thing. You know, he had a Savannah monitor that was pushing over a meter, meter, you know, 1.3 meters. And so he was the one that instilled even more reptile collections with me. So I had a Burmese python that was almost four meters. And there were times where I, and the cage was our entire house. And a Burmese <laughs> python, when it has to take a shit, sometimes has to constrict itself or it gets constipated. So there were mornings where I woke up choking 
because my snake was trying to use my constriction to take a shit. And so uh, I had a lot of crazy pets. And so a rattlesnake to me was no big deal. And I learned to watch the behavior of these guys. Like a rattlesnake that's not rattling isn't going to bite. And so there were times where I would pick up a snake that was cold and it would just hang over the stick. And so I'd look at it and it would look at me and I realized there's no issue here. And I would literally hold it because I was warm. This rattlesnake would just wrap around my hand. You know, it was, it was a really sweet situation. So there was a couple I did that with where I would just hold them. And then when they got warm enough to bite me, I'd put them on the ground and let them go. Yeah. But same thing, like here in the desert, you get wild tarantulas, let them crawl over your hand. And if you pick your hand up, they're fine walking around and, you know, it's, it's almost like there's a psychology there. If you don't mean harm and you show that you're just, uh, you know, curious, inquisitive, a lot of these critters are just as curious. And yeah. I've, I've got amazing. a friend that lives, I've got a friend that lives in Arizona. He's from Scotland, but he's moved out there. He's moved out once, came back and has now gone back out. Um, Chandler, Chandler, Arizona. Oh yeah. It's just north of here. Okay, and he said he, he worked for a while as a, as a personal training instructor. And he said one of his jobs, because he was the new guy on the staff, was to go out very, very early in the morning and sweep rattlesnakes off their artificial tennis courts. Because oh, it was cool. that hard rubber, it, it held its heat more than obviously the surrounding area. So yeah. at night, we'd come out the desert and lie on. But the problem was, because it kind of kept its heat better, they were already kind of a little bit bitey by like 6, 7.30 in the morning when he would have to yeah. go. He would, he would literally be the, the broom, like an eight-foot broom, just sweeping rattlesnakes off. And he's put a couple of pictures up just recently because as he moved back um, tail end of last year, and he puts up pictures of rattlesnakes in his garden like all the time, just like, oh, yeah, this one got in today. I had to move it. It's like, no, just move the house. Don't move the snake, move house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, like, they'll I cannot let you know tell you. So I got bit in the foot once when I was a little kid because I thought it was a lizard and I jumped towards it and I stepped on it and it bit me in the foot. But luckily it sank into the shoe more than my foot, so I didn't get poisoned. But yeah, my parents, I had a weird childhood where my parents were just kind of hands off. They were there, but I'd come home all excited. I just did the dumbest thing ever. They would just be like, (laughs) yeah, so it just continued. Yeah. Oh my god! I, I ever I can point where you're holding the rattlesnake, going. Once it gets too warm, I'm going to put it down. <laughs> when do you know it's too too warm? Is is now? Let's put it down. Yeah, that's a good point. I've had some snakes, and I, you know, they're wrapped around me, obviously cold. You know, I forget what it was. It was, I think it was a amethystine python, but it was smaller, and it was wrapped around my arm. And then I don't know if it was bored or what. It just started chewing and digging its teeth into my arm. And that's when I was like, all right, you know, tink, rip the thing off. It was getting, you know, it was definitely through the skin. But, uh, you know, this stuff, I used to run field trips down to Mexico for a class, an oceanography class. And literally, I would show the students everything that, that could bite or sting or anything, I'd show them on my hand. So I would, you know, I'd show a little octopus chewing in my hand, and I'd explain what the venom felt like as it was, either like feasting or making things go numb. And I'd touch, you know, these giant fireworms that would release toxic glass tubes. You know, I'd let them get in all my fingers or, you know, lick a sea anemone, watch my tongue swell up. 
So, yeah, pretty exciting oh. classes. They, word gets out when you're a nut job lecturer. <laughs> so, one thing, I mean, I, I, I'm terrified of snakes. Terrified of snakes. But I have to know what happened to the, the Burmese python. Uh, so, this was back in college. So, once I was graduating college, you know, what do you do with a four-meter python? There was a one time it actually bit me hard. Like when they're when they're um, shedding, their eyes cloud and they do not want anything near them. And so I walked by it. It was in the kitchen. I mean, it was taking up the entire kitchen. And I walked by it when it was shedding and it didn't know what I was. And it bit me across the back of the whole leg, like the back of my calf. Dude, there was like 60 puncture wounds. And so about, that was about the time I was like, all right, let me get rid of this thing. So I donated it to some sort of little petting zoo <laughs> they didn't, they didn't let me it, but, um, i gave it away to somebody that would actually not kill it because in the states a lot of these pets you know they have to kill them because they grow so fast that thing was growing almost a foot a month depending on how you pet it yeah because they get 10 meters long so uh jesus it was kind of like what do you do with that yeah and and it literally oh. had free reign of your apartment or house it just roamed yeah, about I mean, what do you put something that big into that's humane, right? So the funny thing was, is I would take that thing swimming. Total <laughs> I'm going to run us out of time with stupid stories, but uh, Keep so going. I used to be on the swim team. I used to be on the swim team, and uh, the head coach did something where I wasn't very impressed. I kind of had a chip on my shoulder because the head coach did something. And I got to the point where I was our fastest butterfly swimmer, you know, both arms. Mm. Yep. So I knew they couldn't kick me off the team. And I was like, game on. <laughs> so one of the things I did was bring this python to swim practice. And I would have it like swimming down the lane with me in my, you know, the rest of the team got out. They were like, this crazy fucker brought a 10 meter python, you know. And then when the game was over. It, it took a shit. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. It was about 0.3 meters. It was, it was an entire rabbit condensed into a shit. And so when nobody was looking, I tried to throw it into the gutter, but they found out. Um, so then my next crazy stunt was I went to the, the feed store and I got a baby goose. And I taught this goose how to imprint on me. So it thought I was the mother. And I brought the goose to swim practice. And the goose would swim right behind me the whole time. Like, I would flip turn, go under it, and it would turn around and then go the other way with me down the pool. So I got to be known as, like, uh, some nut Dog. job with all these pets that would come to practice. They called me Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, Dr. Doolittle. I, yeah. I just love We've just hit episode 20, and we've had a goose story on the Silly Goose Gang a podcast. Goose story, so thank yeah. you very much for that. Exactly. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah, oh, my is. God. That is unbelievable. That is incredible. Yeah, I didn't think we would we would get to the point in the podcast where we were talking about pythons taking a shit in a swimming pool. <laughs> like if, <laughs> if we had it at the start of the episode, that's where we would we would get to at some point. I would I would have believed how we got there. We so we we um we specifically said let's get let's get um. Let's get Martin Pepper on. Let's get the Atlantis guy on for episode 20. That'll be a really good episode 20. It's a nice landmark. You know, we'll get in and we've got a really cool guy on. And here we are talking about Python shitting in the pool. Oh, he's digressing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 
better than oh. I could have hoped. Oh yeah, man, that's hilarious. Where, where do you go? From, where do you go from? Where do you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> you name it, I'll go. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't have. I didn't have a segue for that. <laughs> you got these. You have these ideas in your head about where can this go? What can we talk about? Man, this, you know, Atlantis and you know the ancient Greeks and Egypt. Can they tie together? I have nothing for Python shit in the middle. I don't have anything for that. That was oh, unbelievable. That was amazing. That was a genuinely <laughs> good. The funny thing is, and this is kind of related, but my coach became the head coach, and then they made the mistake of inviting me to a swimmer party with the coach, kind of like one of his like career celebration parties. And he pulled me aside before I went into the house. And he's like, don't share any of your effing stories, dude. You will get me fired. <laughs> he's like, the stuff you pulled off will not go by nowadays. Because that was back in the early 90s. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's like so the Python. And, and, you know, that's pretty tame. But those are some good times. Yeah, definitely. Oh man, that's. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that you know that these times that you know we, me and Ali grew up um, before you know camera phones and all this kind of stuff. So you could get away with doing some you know, pretty crazy stuff back then and, and not you know not get in trouble for it. Um, oh yeah, I yeah. like. Um, you hear now like you go to some of these functions and they, you know they've got to confiscate all the phones just so the performers can feel at ease. Yeah. So yeah. Nothing bites them in the butt later. Yeah. Yeah, it happened. My daughter was at a Ariana Grande concert, and they had to put their cell phones or mobile phones, as we call them, inside these little bags that stopped yeah. them working. Yeah, the Faraday yeah. bag. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they couldn't, um, so they couldn't use them at all for videos, photos, anything like that. Which is, I I, I'm so glad that we did all that crazy stuff pre-social media. <laughs> well, yeah, and you think about like improv, even, and that you know the idea of something biting you kills any improv. So mm. you know yeah. this podcast is going to probably ruin any of my future careers. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, yeah, we did things when we were, when we were kids um, that were crazy, and I'm glad oh, that yeah. we didn't have any video even. You know, just stupid stuff. You know, a couple of friends. You know, we'd tie, we'd tie a, a sledge to the back of a car and drive. You know, twenty, thirty miles an hour up the main road and try and slide. The, you know, I mean, just you. There's no video evidence of it. Can you imagine getting caught by the police now, towing a sledge up the up the road at thirty miles an hour? Oh you yeah. Be in so much trouble. <laughs> we used to. Yeah, luckily my stuff was always just self harm stupidity. Probably one yeah. of my best was uh. All the kids would get together at my house, and I would soak my shoes in gasoline, and then they would light them on fire, and I'd try and dance them out. I'd <laughs> <laughs> well, try to dance flaming feet out. Yeah, that was yeah. that was epic. Yeah, that, <laughs> no, that is pretty funny. I've never done that. Well, <laughs> if you want any hair on your legs, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. That's yeah. uh Glad it happened all way before the social media kicked in. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. yeah, we're very, very lucky. Um, especially, you know, just like you're saying, with the, the, you know, the improv stuff, you know, you can't, you know, co- comedy is going to be killed because, you know, you can't joke about anything, anything at all. And you have to explain if you're telling a joke and it's slightly controversial, you have to say, okay, this is a joke. It yeah. kills the whole thing. You know, it's um, quite sad. So, yeah, we're... Uh, 
we're lucky in our our, our era when we grew up. Um, it's funny because you know I know, so I I you know, I drive a lorry for for a living, uh, Martin, and one of the girls um, and one of the places that I went to said, you know, there's a, a guy who works who's a friend of mine in the in the garage and said. Oh, do you have any? Do you, do you have any videos of you know Graham from when you were younger and you were going to nightclubs and all this kind of stuff? Well, no. Like, well, why not? I was like, well, because we didn't have camera phones, and they went, <laughs> "What? Yeah. You, know, you, had, you had you had to physically take a camera, take a picture, take the film to be developed, right? Get it back <laughs> three or four days later, and they're just looking at me going, "What kind of stony shit is this?" And like, yeah, that's that was yeah. the world. You know, it's, this is a different, you know. <laughs> we couldn't go. Nice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, uh, back when Kodak was big. Yeah, yeah. that was one uh, of the. I've also seen ones where, like, you know, a, a three and a half inch floppy diskette, like you would have used in a computer, and I've yeah. seen them handed to kids because I've got teenage boys, um, handed to like mid teens, and they're like, "Whoa, someone three D printed the save I." No, that's that's what we. And they're like, "What?" And I saw one, and it made me feel so old. Someone said, I don't get how you would, how did people make mixed CDs? You know, I used to do CDs of all your favourite tracks and yeah. burn it. And they're like, I don't understand how you used to put music on a CD. Like, how did, <laughs> like CD burners. And they're like, but I don't get what that means. <laughs> Just, <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, you used to make like mixed tapes back in the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I used to listen to the radio with my tape, you know, cassette, 100%. ready to record. Half of my try to miss commercial at the beginning. Try to try to try to try to miss our you know, before kids was a different life, you know, you know, we now have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and, okay. uh, right now the goal is to just keep them alive. <laughs> Some <laughs> days it's harder than others. It's a good I goal. Have a, I have a buddy. Have you guys heard of the, it's a farming group called 4-H here in the States for kids. Yeah. No. So, so 4-H, they like, when you go to a state farm, 4-H is, is a kid, you have like a rabbit or a goat or something that you're raising, and then you enter it in 4-H, you know, to be the best goat in the county kind of thing. Uh, and I, have a, I have a buddy who's uh, a big-time rancher. You know, his family goes back when they homesteaded Arizona, you know, way back early 1800s, and uh, he has a bit older kids than I do. And we both have kind of a ranching background. And he turned to me and he's like, how's it going with the kids? And I was like, pretty good. And he's like, you know, to me, it seems like a 4-H experiment. But if the critter dies this time, you go to jail. (laughs) (laughs) Some days it feels like that, you know. The problem is now you guys know how stupid I am. Like, my daughter will be ready to jump off the top of the house. And I'll just be back thinking, you know, how are we going to make this happen? And the mom, or, you know, my wife will be like, stop! What are you crazy? <laughs> and I'll be, quiet. be like, don't answer that! Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. The father right now is about the craziest thing. Yeah. It is when, you know, that, the best thing I've ever heard about being a parent, I've got, I've got three kids, two teenage boys and a, a 10-year-old daughter. My boys are 16 and 17. 
Um, it said, the aim of a parent is to give your children just enough childhood trauma to make them funny and interesting. And to be fair, I've, I, I've heard Ali's dad jokes. That is enough trauma for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of same bad humor and sick humor. Uh, when I was working on one of these shows, the sound guy turned to me. And he's like, if you don't want them to go to college because you can't pay for it, just crush their spirit. I was like, ouch! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, that's kind of funny, but not really. Yeah. Yeah, it's, my, uh, it's my biggest challenge right now. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, inc it's incredible watching them grow up, though, isn't it, as they start oh, to yeah, develop their personalities. Yeah, and for me, it was a metamorphosis because, you know, like, having kids has made me such an emotional, you know, I can cry now at anything before, you know, I wasn't into anything. And now my daughter does something cute. And I'm just like, Oh God, look at that. It's, you know, it's totally flipped my life around. It's amazing. Yeah. It's cool. It's, yeah. um, yeah, I suppose there's, uh, you know, there's nothing, nothing, nothing crazier than real life. I suppose. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't have any kids, but I've got a niece and a nephew that I'm, I'm the crazy uncle, which is good fun. I get to oh, do yeah, all the crazy, I, I get to do all the crazy stuff, and then say, okay, take this thing back. This is crying. Take it away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've got a, a niece who she will be three in a month, and oh, she lo she loves to climb. She loves climbing things, and I just encourage her. So she wants to huh. jump, and I'll go, and I'll say, do it again, but. Let's move the couch a little further back and like let's jump a little bit further. And yeah. everybody else is kind of going, oh, and I'm going, yeah, it'll be fine. I'll, ca I'll catch you. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm the crazy uncle, so I, I, I like that part. But I like saying it then. Uh, dispose of this. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. So that three, yeah. yeah, we got a three major as well, and they make things crazy. Same thing. She jumps off of anything that's high. Mm. the crazy thing though is like i'll be laying on the floor just stretching or chilling out and she does like a full <laughs> jump and lands on me flat like a full you know stunt man she'll <laughs> knock the wind out of both of us and think it's hilarious as we're both like <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah and yeah, i just support thing. it yeah yeah absolutely yeah definitely support it yeah how many of these stories are you going to tell your kids as they get older then I've already started telling them. Uh, nice. My wife isn't too impressed with some of them, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't set up, you know, hard boundaries of what stories won't be told because she's already fearless. You know, she's already climbing on the roof with a ladder at three. So yeah. I think, yeah, my better judgment is growing, <laughs> <laughs> but it's still not there yet. So yeah, we'll we'll figure it out as it comes. I think, but. The key, right, you know, because I wouldn't have done half this crazy stuff if my parents weren't supportive. You know, my mother was really good about, like you were saying, staying out of the way. And so that's our challenge, you know, especially as a father. I'm sure you see these other people where they're like, oh, don't step in the puddle or, oh, you know, like everything yeah. is controlled now. And yeah. you know, my own motto is parents should be seen and not heard, you know, flip that thing around. It I won't reprimand unless she's going to cause permanent bodily harm to her or somebody else. Mm. 
It's um, it's funny that you mentioned jumping in puddles because when my niece was, I think she was maybe two, and she was just as children do, she was jumping in a puddle, like a quite a deep puddle. So I just went, oh, I'm I'm going to start jumping in the puddle with her, and uh, nice. so me and her were just jumping in this puddle, and they, they could see like other people going, why are you an adult? Why are you jumping in the puddle? Like, yeah, it's fucking fun. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I'll just go home and put my clothes in the wash, and it's fine. I don't want you know. <laughs> Say, you know, like you say, no, don't jump in the puddle, you'll get wet. Yeah, you'll get wet, it's fine. Yes, what? Neil deGrasse Tyson tells a really cool story about that, where he was watching a kid about to jump, and the parent was like, don't, you'll get dirty. And Neil deGrasse Tyson said, right there, you killed a future scientist. Because that kid was going to turn that into an experiment, and they were going to learn about physics, and they were going to learn about, you know, cause and reaction and everything. Mm. And by trying to keep that kid clean... You've just short, you know, just change their future for the negative. And that, mm. that nails it. You know, you don't yeah. know what your kid is thinking when they're going to do some of these crazy things. By saying anything, you're changing that. Yeah. 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 It's a cool way to look at it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a cool way to look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, um, what are we on? What are we on time, Ali? Just go on an hour 15. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I can go till my phone battery dies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you better look in you better look into the back catalogue and get these stories uh get these stories ready then. You better get the questions <laughs> then. Yeah, really. <laughs> really. Um so what, what what's your favorite trip? What was your favorite trip away? Or, uh, or, or should I say should I say craziest trip away? <laughs> yeah they're all kind of crazy they're you know they, they're all like children to me each one of them was crazy for a different reason um you know the motorcycle trip for me was the first time that i've kind of dove into something with no network to save my ass you know everywhere else i had a connection or you know i wasn't going anywhere far so the south american trip was really like I had done some things almost with a personal faith that things were going to work out. And that one was just like, I'm going to throw the dice. I don't know if I'm going to survive it, but I know I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, you know, Papua New Guinea was, it was because I was working in the Caribbean and a guy had just come from that. And so he put the connection together to get me there. And for that, that was the biology and, and the geology, you know, that place is the most geologically active in the world. And so, uh, you know, the, for that place, it was the natural wonders you know, and I've done other trips where it was just, you know, to push my own mentality. You know, how far can I take this? You know, I was just telling my wife the other day that I worked in uh, Baja, California at a sea turtle research camp. And I was the guy that kind of kept tabs on all the volunteers that wanted to do ecotourism. You know, we were catching sea turtles and measuring them and then setting them free. And there was a kid there that was like 10 years my younger, but just as crazy. And so for that trip, that, that research trip, my favorite part was when we actually found this old derelict boat that I could get running. And we literally motored straight out to sea with the intent to become lost at sea. You know, trips like that was like, throw yourself out there. The engine now is completely dead. How are you going to get the 15 miles back out to, you know, back to land? So a lot of these, and, I, you know, anybody watching this, I have found that no matter what you throw yourself into, 
whatever you want to call it, you know, if you're religious, if you're not religious, you are surrounded by the means to get yourself out of that, that hook, that problem. And so as a kid, I always found my mentality can get me out of issues like MacGyver, you know? Oh, and so man. as I've gotten older, I've challenged myself even more. Okay, you think so? Let's try this. Let's try this. And if I fail, I'm dead. And so it's been crazy. I can't tell you how many times if I was a religious man, I would have to say, you know, God just saved my butt. Mm. If I wasn't, it would be okay. The circumstances were correct for me to rig this thing up. You know, like when we were a couple, you know, when we were like 10, 15 miles out to sea, we had a shade that I was able to rig up a sail and we were able to make a dagger board and actually sail ourselves back to the, you know, back to land. So for me, it's the joy of these trips of when you think you're dead, you go, okay, well, how are we going to get out of this? Let's think about this. Let's have some faith, you know, and let's make things happen. And so all these trips mm. have just literally been to kind of uh, strengthen my faith and something out there that allows me to keep going. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, so you like the, the problem-solving aspect. Yeah, totally MacGyver. Like, an interesting trip. My wife wanted to go to uh, Hawaii, and I was like, I don't do hotels, because when I swam, you know, we stayed in, you know, 20 hotels a year. I hate them. I don't want to sleep in a bed that 50 people have had sex in and 3,000 people have slept in, you know? So I prefer to sleep in a ditch. I'll literally sleep under my truck before I'll sleep in a hotel or under the motorcycle. So my wife was like, I want you to go to see her family. She wanted me to go see her family in Japan. So she's like, let's stop off in Hawaii and check it out. And I said, no hotels. She's like, so what am I going to book? I was like, no reservations. She's like, where are we going to stay? I was like, ditches. And she was like, man, why did I marry you? you know. <laughs> so we show up. We wanted to go to Kauai, the little island, you know. And so we were hiking down the street and I was back then I was telling her, you know, if you have the faith, just stuff happens. So we were hiking down the road and this guy stopped us and said, where are you going to stay? And I was like, no idea, sir, but we've got a, a tent, a sleeping bag or a hotel, whatever it takes. And he goes, oh, then you got to stay at my buddy's uh, banana plantation. And I was like, where do we go? And he's like, go down the road, dead end. You can, you can camp wherever you want. So we set up a tent. That guy comes home, sees us strangers in a tent in his front yard, says, what, you know, you better tell me a good story. So I had a few. And he's like, you got to come in and stay with us. So then they had to stay in their house. He's like, hey, we have a cabin on top of the island. Let's go for that tomorrow. So we went to the top of the island. Now we have a cabin overlooking the entire island. They gave us their car to drive, and they gave us a whole list of things that we had to see before we left. And my wife was like, I don't know how the fuck you do this every single time, you know. But unless you're willing to let go of that branch and free fall, you're not going to know what yeah. your life can have, you know. Like, and that's where I'm stuck right now because I have the nine to five to pay the bills, to feed the family. But yeah. my wild side is saying, let go of that branch, dude. You've done it a million times. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if we get out there again. Do you know the thing? Uh, at least you can, because me and Chris have spoke about this in a few different podcasts. At least you know you've got those stories and those experiences banked. Because right. we've talked in the past, like me and Chris are both quite lucky that we, we both enjoy most of what we do for our for our job. 
Um, and it allows us to do some cool stuff on the outside and we both go to uh, jiu-jitsu together. But there's a lot of people that aren't and they're stuck in that nine to five permanently and they don't have any experiences other than, I suppose, as you're saying, that that two-week holiday to, you know, wherever you guys go. Like, for us over here, it's maybe go to Magaluf or Benidorm in Spain, you know, go to the kind of next nearest hot country and spend two weeks in an all-inclusive resort eating British food, eating the, drinking the same beer that you drink back home, but you're just yeah. doing it in 30-degree temperatures and then going back and going back to the 9-to-5 grind. So even though you're saying, you know, you, you still want to let go of that branch, at least you've always got that reserve that, okay, yeah, okay, I'm doing this just now and there's a means to an end, you know, as you say, you've got family and bills, but you've got some incredible experiences, you know, sat in, in the back there, Martin, that, that'll keep you going for a long time, I would imagine. Yeah, but, you know, it's like once you've seen the other side, it makes it hard to go back to being leashed, you know? <laughs> so there are days at work I'm thinking, man, it would be nicer to be stuck in a muddy ditch than, you know, be working in a lab or pushing paper. So, you know, there's two sides to it. Yeah, you can always, you can always go back to that when the kids are old enough, back to that yeah. wild, that wild existence. I know, um, yeah, and that's, that, I, luckily my dad had the wisdom when I was doing all this crazy stuff. He's like, do it now before you're too old and you don't have the physical fitness, you know? Mm. So a lot of my friends are starting to retire and it's like, they're asking me what they, what I would do. And I go down this list and they're like, Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, cause who wants to sleep in a ditch? You know? And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah. When do what, you want to live those experiences is the big question people should be asking themselves now or now, or do they want to maybe die and not even have those? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's certainly, um, I'm all about having, you know, cool life experiences. Um, I'm, I'm lucky, I, you know, I'm unattached, uh, no kids, so I can still, you know, look at the weather forecast on a Friday night and go, uh, it's going to be good this weekend and go, oh, I'm going to go to an island in Scotland. I'm just going to go to one of the islands and go climb some hills and do some exploring and stuff. I'm lucky enough to be able to do that and it's cool. Um, you better do that more and send me pictures, damn it. I have, I have some pictures uh, of sunrises, sunsets from the top of the mountains in Scotland that are incredible. Um, yeah. I'll send, I'll send a couple to Ali and, and tell to send you them. But some of them are amazing. Um, Thank you. Some, some, some super cool pictures in Scotland. So, um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to do that. And you know, like, so I, you know, we've, we've talked about this a couple of times as well. Um, I've done, you know, marathons in France, and you know, been to Holland for jiu-jitsu competitions, and uh, we're supposed to be going to Iceland. Uh, next month for a, a jiu-jitsu training camp, but that's now cancelled. Uh, that's not happening because of COVID. So, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be able to still do these things. Go fuck it, I'm going. <laughs> I'll be back in a week. I'm, gonna go I'm have jealous. Some yeah, I, I did that. I don't think I'd have yeah. the job. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be able to do those things. But uh, yeah, so I mean, do you, I mean, how do you how do you look at people when you know you know when people are doing the nine to five grind, they're sitting in traffic every day, uh, you know that because I mean I, when I'm I speak to people sometimes and they have nothing to say about it. Nothing, I mean I have a million stupid things. Usually when I've been drunk, when I've been on holiday, and silly things have happened, and you know. But you speak to some people and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah don't have anything to say. They just nine to five, they go home, they watch telly, and they do nothing. Do you just look at that and just, does that just hurt your head? Um, 
That's a good question. And, you know, that I've, I've been getting into deeper philosophy now that I have time to think a lot since I'm not trying to kill myself. And I, I realized that, you know, we all have the dinosaur brain. You know, we have all levels of hierarchy of thought. And I see a lot of people that either what they're born into, they didn't have the support, you know, their dreams died young, that they feel that's all that they can do. And so I kind of feel like they've almost not attained their highest consciousness, you know, and you mm. just see people that they haven't pushed themselves. They haven't had the opportunity to, they haven't had the parents to support that. And so I look at that and just, you know, I recognize it. If I think I can inspire those people and get them out of their comfort zone to actually start living, I will, you know, like podcasts like this. I hope some people watch this and they literally start a personal mantra. You know, I'm going to let go of that branch and I want to free fall kind of thing. Mm. But a lot, you know, the sad thing though is the Western society is be that brainless drone, make the money, spend the dollars to support an economy. You know what I mean? Like people are so lost in the, the, the lifetime earning goals and, you know, complete bullshit around money and comfort. That to me, I kind of sadly see those people as lost. They're gone, mm -hmm. you know. They they haven't taken those few chances to truly live. And so they're literally like a robot going through the steps every day and then sitting their butt on the couch almost like a robot sits on a charger to do the thing every day, repetition after repetition. You know, it's those few people that dare to dream that are going to change the world. And those are the people I want to be surrounded by. You know, those are the people... You know, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this. When I'm traveling, I don't know what it is, but I can literally look in the eyes of a person and see that glimmer. You know, I can see a person and instantly know this is, uh, this is we're, on, we're on the same plane, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've seen people where, I don't know if it was a previous life or what, but it's like, you're my brother, you're my sister, you know? And we hit the ground like we haven't been apart and we just met, you know? And it's those adventures that, that I want to surround myself by that, that aren't kind of that lost cause. And, you know, I hope to inspire the ones that aren't there yet. I hope to hang out with ones that, that are there to kind of build a synergy to really kind of start a wave of free thinkers. Because it's those people that are not only going to live for themselves, but also help other people live and help us get over all these issues from racial crap to pandemics. You know, I hope that we can all come together and all start living mm. and all start enjoying every hour of our lives. But it just takes those crazy ones to start it. You know, it starts podcasts like your silly goose to inspire everybody around them, to get people off their asses and live for that life that they always dreamed of. So, you know, that's all yeah. you can do. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I can't, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, I think, you know, it, it takes me back to um, what's the Brad Pitt movie, uh, the fighting. Fight Club. Yeah. What's that? Fight Club. Fight yeah. Club. Yeah. When he puts the gun to that, that, that clerk's head, you know, and he's like, what's your dream in life? And the guy wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian or something. And he was like, if I find you back here in a year, I'm going to blow your brains out. You know, and, and there was this issue there between him. And Tyler, like, how dare you do that? And his point was like, 
I just gave that guy his life back. He is no mm. longer going to live that rote routine because he knows now his life hinges on him living his dream. And I think a lot of us need that Brad Pitt in our own mind, putting the gun to our head saying, I'm going to pull this trigger if you don't do exactly what you dreamt of doing before you chose that normal job. Mm. Yeah. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's driven by fear a lot of the time. And as, yeah. as you were saying at the start, Martin, you know, having a supportive network, not just of friends, but of family and particularly parents, obviously, when you're younger, like you were saying, that kid that's about to jump off the, the, the bench and is told, no, no, don't, cause, because you'll get dirty, sore, wet, whatever it's going to be. If you, see, if you hear that often enough, it must dull that spark that yeah. you need the, the metaphorical gun to the head to kick it back into high gear and certainly hearing stories like you know the ones you've been dropping on this podcast is definitely you know it's inspiring it's it's awesome to hear yeah well and if anybody's listening to this podcast and they really they they have a dream they haven't lived yet and they want to know if they can even you know head towards a dream because i used to give talks to kids that wanted to travel the world but their biggest argument was i can't afford it you know these kids that had the time but they didn't have the money and i was like You know, all these stories I've told you about, I haven't paid a dime. Mm. And, you know, so I would tell these stories and the first kid would be like, okay, how do you do that if you don't have any money? And I was like, who said I paid a dime for everything you've heard? I've either figured out how to get somebody else to pay for it, like these research trips, or I figured out a way to hitchhike my way there. And when I've been in these places, sometimes I've been totally uh, homeless, digging through the trash. And so... These people that are afraid to leave a job to pay for the apartment and pay for the utilities, I challenge you, if you really want to live a dream, why don't you be homeless for a little while and realize your biggest fear is not a fear at all. You know, being homeless for some people is complete liberation. You know, when I go to the, the, the parts of Tucson with the homeless people, part of me is jealous. You know, not for the ones that have psychological issues or other issues, but I know some people that are homeless by choice that are traveling the world. You know, they're hopping trains, they're hitchhiking, and they're doing things that everybody else can't do because they're trying to pay that utility bill or they're paying the mortgage. So anybody thinking they can't do something, if you realize how comfortable it could be to be homeless in paradise, you'd be there right now. You know, just like Mm -hmm. my story about Hawaii. Like, you can go anywhere you want if you have a dream and you can get people interested, they'll pay for you to go there. If you can't, you can do it homeless. So there are no excuses. Yeah, that's, that's really that. what it comes down to. It's yeah. just, it's Brad Pitt with a gun to your head. There are no excuses. Yeah. I know where Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller did that. He went homeless. He left his house at like 14, 15 and literally traveled east to west, west to east, just by hopping trains and doing street performance. Um, wow. And he said it was the, the most liberating thing he ever did. It was where he learned how to do work a crowd, you know, do his act, have literally no one stood. And he, I've heard him on a podcast where he talked about the trick he used in every single town, you know, east to west, west to east and back again, how he used it to build a crowd every single time. So we get enough people stood around that he can make 50, 60 dollars to then yeah. allow him to move to the next town to do 50 or 60 dollars to move to the next town. And that's how he spent the first, you know, the first three years of his late teens, early twenties, was he was literally homeless, and he made himself homeless by choice, and his parents right. totally supported him in doing that. That's cool. Yeah, that gets that gives me chills. The idea of it. So, 
there are no excuses in life. And, and, you know, and I'm learning now there aren't, you know, what happens in your life is not by mistake either. You know, like I've, you know, lately we've gone through some really hard times. Our, our two-year-old daughter just got type one diabetes, you know, and it, it shattered us because your life now hinges on two hour cycles, 24 hours a day, measuring blood sugar and treating with insulin. And, you know, this happened a year ago. And with a kid that young, you're just, you know, like you're cursing God and all these things. But now we find it as a blessing. And so there are no accidents. Whether anybody wants to believe they have to stay in that job and be miserable, the time that you jerk yourself out of that, it's not an accident. So the time to start living and make everything, make everything by choice. No victims, you know. Yeah. No victims, no prisoners. Live your life exactly how you want it to be. Hmm. I think it must be um, it must be an awful thing to get to the end. You know, be lying in a hospital bed, all full of tubes and stuff, and just go, "Fuck, I didn't do anything that I wanted to do." It must be a terrible, terrible, terrible feeling. Or, um, or maybe it isn't because you don't you you have lived that way and you don't know any better. So maybe maybe it's not all that bad. But it seems like an absolute waste of. You know, if you think we're going to be maybe live to be 80 years old, you've maybe got 60 years where you're really functional, maybe another 10 where you're not too bad, and then 10 where you're not good. Yeah, you don't, you don't have a lot of time to go and do things. So um, I am not as extreme as you, uh, Martin, but I certainly, I certainly kind of try and do what I want to do and, and have fun with the whole thing. And, uh, and you know, you know, I, you know, just silly things like, you know, I had... You know, for a jiu-jitsu class, we have the you know the traditional gi that you wear, and you know I had a white one, and I I made mine tie dye. I don't know this. I made mine tie dye, and people would say, "Why did you make a tie dye gi?" And you go, "Because it's fun." Right. <laughs> it's like, why not? And people yeah. kind of look at you like you're a bit mad. And you go, "No, it's, it's funny." Thirty-five years old, and I made a tie dye gi. What about it? That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's just good fun. So yeah. I'm not as extreme as you by by any stretch of the imagination, but I am, you know. Um, You're just smarter. If, that's all it is. That's the only thing anyone's ever said that. I'm not smarter. I'm not smarter at all. Definitely not. Um, but yeah, it's um, this feels this feels like a nice place to sign off now. At the end of this uh, this little life lesson here, it feels like a nice place to sign off. So. Um, We've just done a hundred minutes as well, which is more time than we were expecting to take yours, Martin. So we genuinely That's, appreciate um, it. Sure, was, uh, I'd love to do it again. Super so good fun. Yeah, let me yeah, know if you guys are interested for more chats. This time I'll get some alcohol and we'll really get the stories flowing. <laughs> That's Deal. what we'll do. The next time we will have some beers and uh, we'll we'll get we'll get crazy. That's what we'll do the next time. Perfect. Um, but yeah, we'd love to speak to you again, Martin. It was awesome. Thank you for your time. Didn't go exactly how I thought it didn't go exactly, didn't go at all how I thought it was going to go. It was uh, way more fun, way Way more more fun. fun. Just just before we do sign off, Martin, I will always just ask if people are looking for you on social media or anything, where can people get in contact? Where can they find out more about you? Any of those kind of platforms? Yeah, so um, I got Twitter, it's Marty Moose the third, so M A R T Y M O O S E I I I. I got to share more on that. Uh, I have a YouTube channel as well. It's called Dr. Martin Pepper. And same as my Gmail. Uh, what else? That's about it. I don't, I don't do the Instagram or 
lately I'm not doing anything but just trying to pay bills. So I'm kind of living against my own motto these days, but we'll get back to it. So that's pretty much it. Twitter or uh, YouTube. Cool. And I'm going to actually get more active because I did some really stupid stuff that I filmed. So you'll I look see forward more. to that. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, sub- I'll subscribe to the, the uh, YouTube channel as soon as we get off here. So. Um, cool. yeah. we'll, um, we'll post it as well on our, on our notes when we share our YouTube in the next few days as well so hopefully we'll send some, some people your way as well and hopefully they enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed the chat awesome, thank you guys cool, um, well thank you very much Martin, it was, a, it was a real pleasure absolutely, for me as well and we're going to do this again <laughs> soon I, I will find you <laughs> yeah definitely, we will definitely do it again but signing off episode 20 dr martin pepper thank you so much for your time this evening all right yes. see you later Ta-da.